Okay, hey y'all. So we are going to go ahead and get started. This is session seven. So if you have the one that says session six, like me, that's not the right one. Uh, should be session seven that we're here. Reformation number two. And this morning we're talking about Calvin and the Council of Trent. Exciting, right? Huh? Y'all pumped? Yeah, I know you are. I'm ready. Okay, uh, let's pray before we get into it. <clears throat> Lord God, we are grateful for this opportunity we have to think about the history of your church, think about how we might, um, how we might grow um, from this knowledge. And I pray that you will help us to see um, the work of great men of faith who, who strove to uh, restore the gospel and to, um, to hold your word up as the w wonderful source of knowledge and authority that it is. I pray that you'll bless this time this morning, and may we bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you may notice, for one thing, that we're in session two on the, Reforma on the Reformation, um, and then next week, we're also still in Reformation, and you're going, okay, hold on a second. Um, we're spending way more time in the 16th and 17th centuries than we have in other periods of church history, and you would be right. We are. We're spending a lot more time. Like, poor Corey. He had to do like 400 years in the Middle Ages all in one session. And here we are spending three sessions on less than 200 years. So, okay, what's, what gives? What's the difference? Well, tell me, let me tell you why. First part of it is that uh, it's our focus. We have, to, we have to decide where to focus. Church history is this enormous like web of knowledge and history, right? So we, we can see it starting with, with Christ and his apostles, um, but very quickly it's spreading out. Right? And we have some very clear kind of splits that happen throughout history. And since we are studying history over the course of 12 weeks, uh, we have to pick which kind of stream to follow. Right? We already saw one split back with the east-west divide, and so we've kind of been following the west end of that. Right? We haven't talked a whole lot about the eastern church since we talked about that, that schism. Um, so now we get to the point where there's going to be another really huge divide. And the Reformation is the marking point for that divide, where we get the divide from Protestant church and Roman Catholic church. Okay, so we have to kind of say these division points are really vital, and we have to say, well, we're not focusing on every single little stream of Christian history overall the whole world. Right? We're not going to talk a whole lot about the church in Asia. We're not going to talk a whole lot about the church in Africa. Uh, mostly because we're tracing where we come from. Like, why are we here at Christ Community Church? What, what's the history that gave rise to this kind of tradition that we are in? Um, so that's part of why we're spending so much time on the Reformation. It's a huge part of demarcating where we come from. Another part of it is that this area right here of church history, the Reformation, is super, super dense for several reasons. One, with the printing press uh, coming about, suddenly, like, so much more stuff could be published. And there was a lot more things being read, a lot more things being written, a lot more out there available for people uh, to consume. And because of that, people started, like, having their own ideas about things. So there's a lot more different kind of little splits. Um, the availability of the Bible is a huge part of that. So with different translations into common language throughout the Reformation, we see it translated into German and into French, um, and we see that people are now able to read the Bible for themselves, which they really weren't able to do before. Luther was actually instrumental in developing schools 
to teach people how to read because he thought, well, I want them to read the Bible, but even if they have the Bible in their own language, they still can't really read it because most of them are illiterate. So um, all of that works together to say, like, the Reformation time is a pivotal time in church history, um, and it's also a really rich and dense time. So that's why we're spending three weeks on it. So last week, we talked about um, Luther and Zwingli, if you remember. Tyler did a great job with that. Um, and in that, one of the, the key or one of the core um, principles of the Reformation was brought up. Um, it's this Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Okay, and you may have heard of the solas of the Reformation before. There are five of them. Um, so one of those solas is sola scriptura, which says the word of God alone is our ultimate and final authority. Okay, so that's what we're talking about when we say sola scriptura. That principle was huge for guys like Luther and Zwingli. Right, we saw Luther at the Diet of Worms before the council, and they're basically saying, like, you're a heretic, renounce everything. And he says, uh, my conscience is held captive to the word of God, right? The word of God was his, like, driving principle. You also saw that was Zwingli, right? What was his key thing? What did he do to bring reformation to Zurich? He stood up and he preached the Bible. He preached the entire New Testament, starting with Matthew and just working chapter by chapter all the way through. So he saw power in the word to do the work. And so we saw that this whole idea of sola scriptura within the Reformation was not really like an attack on uh, church unity. A lot of people accused the, the Protestants of trying to divide the church, and ultimately they did. Um, but it wasn't an attack on church unity. The idea was, let's return to the foundational principles that would actually foster lasting church unity. What can make that happen? Well, understanding of the authority of the scripture. That, that gives us a great foundation. So this week, we're going to look at another major principle of the Reformation, um, and that is sola fide, another sola of the Reformation, or sola fide, which says faith alone, or by faith alone. And this is talking about our justification. So how are we made right with God? We're made right with God by faith alone. Um, and to do this, to think about this, this principle of the Reformation, we're actually going to look at two responses to this view, to the view that justification is by faith alone. First, we're going to talk about John Calvin. He's this pastor um, who is immensely impacted by Reformation teaching, um, especially the view of justification. And he becomes instrumental because of what he, he learns. He becomes instrumental in, like, clarifying and bringing a system to, systematizing the doctrines of Protestantism, like justification by faith, like sola scriptura, those kind of things. And then second, we're going to consider a different response, a very different response to the Reformation um, at the Council of Trent. And this is the, what's often called the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Um, the Roman Catholic Church basically rejected and cursed the teachings of the Protestants, like Luther's Wingley Calvin, um, on issues such as scripture and justification. So we're going to see those two kind of laid out before us. Hopefully that's helpful. And in those two views, by the way, we're going to see like the general outlines of the division that we still have in the church today, still have in, in Christianity today, right? The chief distinctions between evangelical Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholic Church have to do with their view of Scripture and their view of justification. Two huge pieces. So, with that said, let's dive into John Calvin. And before I talk a lot about him, I want to first kind of address some common misconceptions, or I guess maybe caricatures of Calvin, because I think that we may not know him very well. 
First, if you just learned about Calvin in a history class, you may think of him more like a, um, a ruthless tyrant. Um, he kind of ruled Geneva with an iron fist, set up this theocracy, and then burned these people who disagreed with him. Um, and he's like, oh, you're going to submit, and he's really no better than like the Inquisition was. Um, so that's kind of one caricature of him. Another caricature, uh, you may only be familiar with Calvin through what's commonly called Calvinism. So if you've heard that phrase before, you go, okay, I know Calvinism, it's like this really serious focus on God's sovereignty, on election, on predestination, on eternal security. Um, but actually, both of those caricatures are not super accurate. Um, in reality, Calvin was a faithful pastor, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant writer who was uh, always trusting in God's word. And he was really more of like a humble and studious bookworm um, than some sort of like bombastic outgoing leader or some raging tyrant. So he's very different from Luther in that way. Uh, he's very much more a quiet, thoughtful kind of guy. And his writings are far from only about predestination. Um, if they were mostly about that, then there would be giant tomes full of it because he has a huge volume of writing. He's written commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. Um, he has, his Institutes of the Christian Religion is, you know, volumes hundreds of pages thick. So there's a lot of writing there, and not all of it's about predestination. Um, and what is in there about that topic is not really anything new. He's mostly just relying on the teachings of Augustine um, or on Paul um, to, to bring those things up. So it's not like it's a new thing. What's commonly known as the five points of Calvinism, if you've heard that term before, weren't developed by Calvin at all. He didn't come up with the five points. Um, those were created at the Synod of Dort more than 50 years after Calvin died. So, some misconceptions toppled. Let's talk about who Calvin actually was. So he was born in 1509 in Noyon, France, which means that we should call him Jean Calvin. That's a better way to say it. He's born in France. Uh, his father was a wealthy guy, uh, had some influence, and got him a few church appointments. Uh, he had some, some jobs in the church early on, um, and actually sent him to Paris in 1520 to study to become a priest. So Calvin was on his way to the priesthood. Um, but uh, his dad got in kind of a legal dispute with <laughs> the church and um, was excommunicated. And so in 1528, he's like, uh, no, I think it would be better for you to go become a lawyer instead. So uh, he pulled Calvin out of, the, uh, out of the priesthood school and sent him to, become a, to learn law. And while studying to be a lawyer, um, Calvin's in a place where there's some influences around him and the Lord does a work in his heart. And this is how Calvin says it. Um, in 1533, around 1533, we don't know exactly when he was converted. He never said which year it was. Um, but around 1533 or so is, is likely when it happened. And here's, here's what Calvin said about his conversion. When I was yet a very little boy, my father had destined me for the study of theology. But afterwards, when he considered that the legal profession commonly raised those who followed it to wealth, this prospect induced him suddenly to change his purpose. Thus it came to pass that I was withdrawn from the study of philosophy and was put to the study of law. To this pursuit I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my father. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave me a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, beautiful words there, uh, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. 
Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. So in other words, he got bit by the Holy Spirit bug and decided that he was really interested in knowing more about God um, and less about law. But notice that like, there's a lot of things that work together to ha- make this happen. He has relatives nearby. His cousin actually was instrumental in translating the Bible into French. Um, but, okay, he doesn't cite any of those things as the reason for his conversion. He just says, God changed my heart. He gives credit totally to God. But then in 1535, now notice I'm flying through his life, okay? So if you want more information, there's great uh, biographies of Calvin out there. I can point you to a few. Um, in 1535, Persecution comes to France. Um, They decide, hey, Protestants, you can't be here anymore. And so he has to flee to Basel, Switzerland. Um, And he's 26 or so around this time. And while he's there, that's actually where he first published the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit, so I won't get a whole lot into that right now. But then, in uh, 1536, um, Calvin decides he's going to go to Strasbourg, Germany. Um, but he finds out that the, the route is closed because they're doing like these military exercises. So instead, he has to take a detour and go through Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and he was just going to spend the night, but his reputation was already really well known because of his work writing the Institutes. When it was per- first published, it was a big, like, you know, number one bestseller kind of thing. And so the reformers knew, knew who he was. Um, so he gets accosted by this dude, uh, William Farrell, not, not Will Farrell, don't get excited, different guy, uh, William Farrell, who is uh, there in the church in Geneva trying to reform it. He's trying to bring reformation to the church at Geneva. Um, and he comes and says, you can't leave. You have to stay here. We need you here. Um, here's how Calvin recalled the night. Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. And after having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wish to keep myself free from other pursuits, see, I told you, he's a bookworm, he just wants to study, Uh, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken." And so he stayed in Geneva. And between uh, 1536 and 1538, he was there working to help bring Reformation, doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of teaching and preaching. But the whole time, his ministry is full of tension, primarily with the city council of Geneva, because recognized that through the history of the world so far, basically, or at least in terms of Christian world, um, the city had the power over, like, who's in the church, basically, right? The church and state are like this. Um, There's not much of a division between the two. And so to be excommunicated was uh, an act of the church, but it was really an act of the state as well. And so the city said, "Um, no, 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 Calvin, you don't get to decide who gets to be in and out of the church. We make that decision. You don't get to to excommunicate people. Um, And Calvin believed, rightfully so, I think, that the church should have the power over who is partaking in communion each week, like who is a member of the church. And eventually, um, Calvin and Farrell insisted that there's a certain group that were just troublemakers. They said, these guys have to be excommunicated before Easter. Um, 
and when it came and the city council didn't do it and they were there, um, they just refused to have church, didn't do anything, um, and so they kicked Calvin out of Geneva. So he finally got to go to Strasbourg, which was nice, I guess. Um, so he traveled on to Strasbourg, which is originally, you know, his plan in the first place. Um, and this is really like the most fruitful time in Calvin's life. From 1538 to 1541, he was there. Um, he learned uh, under this guy named Martin Bucer. You may have heard his name before. He was one of the great, like, first-generation reformers. So if you notice, Calvin is born in 1509, so that's just a few years. Like, Luther's already teaching um, at the University of Wittenberg at that point, right? Luther's already on his way to starting Reformation. So when Calvin's growing up, he's growing up in a world that's already starting to, to be in the Reformation. So he's kind of a second generation. So Martin Bucer was this kind of first generation reformer, and he taught Calvin a lot of stuff. Um, and it was really Bucer who um, helped Calvin get this vision for training pastors, and ultimately uh, he, he developed this dream of starting an academy uh, to train and teach young, young men to become pastors. He also, Bucer, invited Calvin to come and be the pastor of the French-speaking uh, congregation there um, in Strasbourg. And he learned a lot about ministry, um, about how to be a pastor from watching Martin Bucer. And these were really like the happiest years of his life. Um, he wrote a lot. He preached a lot. He got married. Um, he just, it was a really good time for him. But then, in 1541, the Genevan government officials came running back to Calvin because um, Geneva was now under pressure to return back to Roman Catholicism. And... They needed someone to help kind of rebut this, these letters that they were getting calling them to, to change back. So they officially invited Calvin to return, and Calvin did not want to return. Why would he, right? You guys kicked me out. I don't want to go back. I'm happy here. I'm writing. I'm teaching. I'm married. All is well. Um, he, he actually said, he wrote a letter to uh, Pharrell that said he would rather die a hundred times than go back to Geneva. Um, but after much prayer... Uh, in September of 1541, he did actually go back to Geneva. Um, and when he walked in, he walks into the, the church there where he had been the pastor before, walks up the steps um, to the pulpit, and he started preaching right where he had left off the week before he was kicked out. Um, he didn't say, I told you so. He didn't say, uh, you guys shouldn't have done this. He just kept preaching. And Calvin's reform work in Geneva was mostly a matter of preaching. Um, from 1541 to 1549, he preached twice on Sundays, three times during the week. And then from 1549 onward, he preached every single day, which sounds hard to me. Um, he did a lot of work in reforming the church's relationship with the city, which was a good thing because that was obviously a problem. Um, and... And finally, after 14 years of work in 1555, the city council finally said, okay, the church has the right to make decisions about uh, who's within the church. Um, and so the, the right to church discipline and excommunication was, was granted by the city to the elders there of, of the church. Um, and then in 1558, Calvin got to see one of his great dreams realized when he started the Genevan Academy. And this was just like a, a seminary, basically, a theological training school, um, whose first rector was Theodore Beza, another name that you may have heard, or if you haven't, you should know about him. He's an important guy in the Reformation, too. 
And by the time Calvin died, just a couple years later, the school had like 1,500 students. Um, in 1559, Calvin completed his final edition of the Institutes, and well, 1559-1560, because um, it was published in French and in Latin. Um, and then he also did commentaries on 24 of the Old Testament books and 24 of the New Testament books, um, and those are great. I use them all the time, actually. And then at 1564, in May, um, he had been ill for a long time, actually, but he died at the age of 55, and I think this is neat. He was buried in a plain wooden coffin, in an unmarked grave. Um, so he died as humbly as he had lived. Um, his focus was on the glory of God. <clears throat> but in terms of legacy, that's just kind of a brief biography. In terms of legacy, I would say Calvin is the great systematizer. He brought order to the theology of Protestantism. Calvin didn't have the goal of becoming a leader of the Reformation. He never wanted to be some sort of Reformation leader. He wanted space to study, read, write. That's all he wanted. And at the time, there were lots of writings coming out from these Reformation leaders, but there was like a flood of information. And so there was a need for like a systematic theology for Protestant Christianity. And Calvin believed that God had called him and gifted him to bring clarity to, uh, to that doctrine. So uh, Houston Gonzalez says it this way. His main project on this score was a short summary of the Christian faith from a Protestant viewpoint. Until then, most Protestant literature, drawn by the urgency of polemics, in other words, people are fighting about stuff, had dealt exclusively with points at issue and had said little regarding other basic doctrines such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, and so on. And he proposed to fill this vacuum with a short manual <laughs> that he called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. A short manual. The first edition of the short manual was like 516 pages um, and had six chapters. Not too much. First four dealt with the law, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the sacraments, which he made a clear, pretty clear mark there, like the sacraments being baptism and Lord's Supper, right? Those are the two for the Protestant side. Uh, and then the fifth chapter summarized the Protestant, like, rejection of the other sacraments, the other five. Um, and then the sixth chapter talked about Christian liberty. Um, and it was a huge success when it was first published in 1536. Sold out immediately, uh, great demand for more. It was first published in Latin. He very quickly had to translate it into French and get that put out too. Um, and then he kept revising and issuing new editions continually, Latin and French, Latin and French, Latin and French, over and over and over, uh, over the years. And then the final edition in 1560 had transformed radically from that first six-chapter pamphlet. Um, it was now a massive work, like 80 chapters divided into four books. It's a huge, huge deal. Um, it covers God, revelation, creation, the nature of humanity, redemption, the nature and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, justification, sanctification, the church, the sacraments. Right? It covers the whole swath. It's a systematic theology. It systematically works through all the different elements that are important for us as Christians to understand about what we believe. That's a pretty great legacy, I would say, uh, from Calvin. So now we turn to the other response. So, so Calvin represents the Protestant kind of response to justification by faith. Um, and the Council of Trent represents the Catholic, the Roman Catholic response. So the Council of Trent... We've heard about councils before. We know what councils are. It's a meeting of church leaders. They all come together. Bishops uh, come together, and they talk about issues. 
Well, the Council of Trent was the official response of the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Reformation. Now, there were lots of different, like, individual responses. Lots of different bishops and cardinals and whatever said different things. Um, but we're focusing on Trent because it marks the official, like, official breaking point between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. It's the, like, the line in the sand, okay? Now, the problem is that uh, unlike many of the early church councils that we studied in this class before, we saw the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, um, we call those ecumenical councils because they had representatives from all these different areas, right, all these different churches. Um, for the Council of Trent, it wasn't very ecumenical. Um, there were no representatives of the Lutheran or the Reformed or the Orthodox. Um, it, was, it was all... Um, basically Italians, 70% of the, the bishops there were from Italy, um, and they were all kind of buddies with the Pope. Um, in fact, the place where it was chosen to be was in Trent, which is now it's like northern Italy, but at this time it was at, technically in Germany, uh, which that was part of the idea. It was like, okay, we won't put it in Italy, and that way it'll seem like, okay, we're, we're meeting outside of the, kind of the Pope's general area, um, but it was not an unbiased body at all. Um, it was still close enough that the Pope had his hand on it, and they were intended in trying to be kind of an objective jury that was weighing Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all those guys uh, on these charges of doctrinal error, um, but it was very much not an unbiased body. But here's what's really crazy to me. Despite the fact that this gathering was entirely Catholic, um, almost exclusively Italian. The big thing was that most of these guys had never even read anything that the Protestants had written firsthand. And even with that, they still struggled to come to agreement on matters like authority of Scripture, on matters like justification. There was still disagreement among these what seems to be like hand-picked people to make the right call, they still couldn't really agree. And if you notice the council, it says, you know, 1545 to 1563, and you're like, holy cow, 18 years? It took them a long time to figure this out. Well, it did take them a while, but mostly because they kept getting interrupted. And so most of that time was spent in recess, right? They only, I think they only met for maybe seven of those years total. <clears throat> And here's another question you may ask. Okay, the Protestant Reformation starts in 1517 with Luther, right? Kind of gets rolling. We'll give him three years to really kind of get rolling, right? So by the 1520s, we have a Reformation happening. Why is it that it takes until 1545 for them to call a council and get to business figuring out how to, you know, argue with these guys? Well, way back um, in February of 1523, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, he sent a letter to, to the Pope at the time, and he said, hey, we need to have a council to figure out what's going on with these Protestants. We've got to talk about this. Um, but it still took 22 years. Here's why. Okay, if you recall from last week and several weeks before, there have been a number of councils throughout the 1300s and 1400s. The Council of Constance, for example, was one. Um, and these councils had set a lot of limitations on papal authority. Right? So it seemed like every time a council got together, they were somehow limiting the Pope's power. So, practically, the Pope's just quit calling councils. If you're going to take my power away, 
you guys probably shouldn't just get together over there and talk about what you want to do. So when Charles V, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, when he calls for a council, he's really like issuing a threat. He's not, it doesn't seem like he's honestly wanting to talk about these things, um, and at least to the Pope. And he's demanding that it be held in Germany um, so that he, the Pope can't unduly influence what's happening there. Um, and uh, Charles, based on his letter, he really wanted it to be a more doctrinal council. He wanted it to talk about like what the teachings were. Um, and that scared the Pope to death. Because uh, <laughs> not only was this council going to be a way that could possibly chip away at his authority, I mean, it might even side with Luther. But there's another reason to delay. Um, in the decades surrounding the, the Reformation, uh, France, the Holy, Holy Roman Empire, the Vatican, uh, and others also were constantly at war. So there's a whole lot of fighting going on. In fact, in 1527, Charles V invaded Rome, nearly killed the Pope. He barely escaped. Um, so all of this is like a lot of stuff happening, and it's not a very good time to call a council, right? So we could give a little bit of leeway, like, okay, maybe we should wait till all the fighting's over before we try to get together to talk about uh, these doctrines. But nevertheless, between when Martin Luther was uh, excommunicated in 1520 and the convening of the Council of Trent in 1545, that's 25 years, basically because the Pope said, if I fear a council, I won't be able to control it. Now, there are a number of documents that come out of um, the Council of Trent. But the most important, the ones that really matter that you're going to read if you go look up, like, Council of Trent, is what's called the Decrees and Canons of the Council of Trent. Okay, now those are two words. Let me explain what they mean. A decree is like a theological or a doctrinal statement um, on a disputed question. So it's like, we believe that this about the Trinity, right? We believe this about justification, um, and these are usually like longer, several paragraphs, several pages. They're usually complex, and they're very much like theological works. Um, the canons, on the other hand, are more like really short, really firm, dogmatic definitions uh, with what's called an anathema attached. And anathema is just a fancy word that means accursed. Um, and so there's this formula that a, that a canon follows. It says, if anyone says this, let them be anathema or let them be accursed. Let them be cut off from the church. Let them be damned is essentially what it's saying. So decrees and canons, those are the two pieces that you see here coming out of Trent. So what are they, what are they looking at? Well, the, the Protestants kind of were indicting, I guess you could say. They had two different areas of, of conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. One was doctrinal, right? They had an issue with, like, we want to recover the true gospel. We want to talk about justification by faith alone. We, we want this. This is a, a doctrinal issue. Uh, sola Scriptura, doctrinal issue. Um, on the other hand, they had a structural issue. There was a lot of abuse going on. Uh, leaders in the church who were corrupt, and there were all these abuses that were happening, and so that was the other branch of problems. And on that side, the church really didn't, like, have anything to disagree with. Uh, the abuses were pretty much uncontested. Um, there's this Catholic historian named John O'Malley, and he says that um, 
On the eve of the Reformation, only half of pastors resided in their parishes. And in Geneva, things were even worse, where only 20% resided in their parishes. So in other words, priests were basically like pocketing the income and then not doing the work. Why? Well, at the time, popes appointed bishops. So a bishop would basically just get passive income for the swath of land that they bishoped over. Um, and so, you know, there, there's farming happening there or whatever, and they're receiving this kind of passive income. And so for a lot of bishops, a bishopric was simply like property ownership. That's all they really thought of it as. It was not a church thing at all. They didn't think of it in terms of theological issue. Um, and so, because of that, many of them had multiple bishoprics. Um, and also, many popes were gifting bishoprics to different guys. Like, hey, you're a relative. Uh, you want to be a bishop? Here you go. Or maybe they were selling them for cash to the highest bidder. All this kind of stuff was happening, was widespread at the time, and really was not, didn't seem very controversial. Like, people were just kind of like, accepted it. It's just how it worked. So when it came to those charges, to the structural issues, the abuses of clergy, selling and buying of bishoprics, there wasn't a dispute. And so the council absolutely said, this isn't right. And so the council determined, number one, that one could not hold multiple church office simultaneously. Good. Can, number two, that the illiterate or immoral local church officials could be deprived of their offices. And they actually did some work on setting up training for people to become bishops so that they could actually, I don't know, like read the Bible. Um, and then number three, uh, said that all bishops must make annual visits to their diocese to monitor the behavior of the clergy and the religious life of the laity. So they did a lot of work in the Council of Trent in reshaping and making sure that these church leaders were doing the right thing. So if, in that sense, like, the reformers were kind of vindicated, right? Um, if the Reformation had only been about fixing the issues in the clergy, then the Reformation would have been over at this point. Everybody would have been happy, Everybody's back together, like, good, thanks for fixing the problems, guys. But at the heart of the disagreement, there was doctrinal issues. And that's where the Protestants and Catholics couldn't find a common ground. So that brings us to Scripture and authority. So after dealing with structural reforms in the first two sessions of the council, Trent turned to doctrinal reforms and centered on two issues. We've already talked about them. The doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of justification. Specifically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They, they use that phrase, so I use it too. Um, the reformers said, well, the church has displaced the authority of Scripture with papal authority. They've given the Pope too much leeway. Um, and they charged that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, had been replaced with this works-based or sacrament-based system within the, within the Catholic Church. And Trent, rather than focusing on refuting people or condemning people, which they had done in the past where they would condemn specific heretics, in this case they condemned only doctrines. So they didn't mention anybody's names. Um, and this may have possibly been because they didn't really know who was teaching these things. They weren't very well versed with the things that the people who were writing them. Um, and they made two really important decisions regarding the scriptures. So these are huge, okay? So when it's talking about the authority of Scripture and what we're talking about with Scripture, the Council of Trent says, we believe in a wide canon, which means they included the Apocrypha in their books of the Bible, and second, they said that Scripture is equally authoritative with 
the unwritten tradition. So unwritten tradition and scripture are equally authoritative. Right, so that's the two things, wide canon and unwritten tradition, equally authoritative. So first, the canon, let's talk about that. The reason why they had to deal with this is because they had to have some sort of basis on which they could legitimately like, make doctrinal claims. Many of the doctrines that the reformers were opposing, like the existence of purgatory, uh, the distinction between mortal and venial sins, those kind of things were really like only defensible if you go to external books, deuter-canonical books, I can't even say it, um, the Apocrypha, right? So like the only place we really find any doctrine of purgatory is in the Apocrypha. Um, and so Luther and, and other reformers had rejected the Apocrypha, those seven books, um, because they said, well, the Hebrew Bible doesn't include them. We're not going to either. Um, but there was a really long-standing like, debate within the church, like, all the way back to Augustine and Jerome, because um, not everybody had agreed on whether the Apocrypha should be included or not. And that was true at Trent as well. They couldn't all agree. Um, but I guess they managed to figure out a way to come to some sort of, uh, I don't know, agreement. <laughs> um, Maybe they just told a few people, like, you don't get to vote anymore. I don't know. Nevertheless, uh, they named the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then they named the Apocrypha books. Um, and then the council issued the following canon. If anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety with all their parts, let him be anathema. Okay, so if you don't accept the wide canon, all those books, you are cut off from the church. And that really marked the beginning of the Roman claim to the supremacy of the church over the scriptures. Because if they're able to say, like, these are the books that are canonical, then authority ultimately lays not with scripture, but with, with them. So the second piece, um, so they had to affirm the wide canon, but then the second one was they argued that unwritten traditions were on equal footing with scripture. Why? Well, they realized that even if you include the Apocrypha, there's still a lot of practices within the church that you don't really have any good reason for. Um, except for, well, this is the way we've always done it. Um, and this is exactly why reformers like Luther had strongly asserted sola scriptura, because they said like, hey, look, you're doing all these things that don't have any merit, like there's no basis for them in Scripture. Um, so they argued against, like, all these ceremonies and unbiblical practices that were creeping into the church. And again, among the bishops that were at Trent, there was not consensus. They didn't all agree. One guy, um, the bishop of Chiogia, said, were not all truths necessary for salvation found in Scripture? Another bishop uh, says, uh, to put Scripture and traditions on the same level is impious. But even with those, you know, disagreements happening, there is still the decree concerning the canonical scriptures, um, and it affirmed that the Holy Scripture and unwritten traditions are both sources of revelation. It says it this way. Um, it also clearly perceives that these truths concerning the gospel and rules are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, uh, which receive by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating have come down to us, transmitted as it were from hand to hand. Since God is the author of both testaments, also the traditions, whether they relate to faith or to morals, as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession. 
that phrase there in unbroken succession, that's what they use. That, that shuts down any conversation about reforming your practice because they say, well, if you raise a question about the biblical basis for the papacy, the biblical basis for the way that we do the Eucharist, all they have to say is, no, this is our tradition, this is the way we've done it. This is what's right because this is, this is what we've done. This is what we've been doing since, since Jesus. But then, after dealing with Scripture, the Council of Trent turned to the doctrine of original sin and justification. And this, like, oh golly, guys, I, I know this is, y'all are like, okay, I'm trying to stay awake, Ryan. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm sorry. Council's stuff is not the most riveting. Um, and this part, like, can get really... If you go to try to read the Council of Trent on justification, whew, it's like, it's tough. It take, you have to like take multiple breaks. Um, they spent seven months just working on the Articles and Decrees for, concerning justification. It was really complicated. Their goal was to try to find a middle ground between the kind of semi-Pelagian teaching of the day, which we've talked about that before. Um, that was widespread within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they wanted to find a middle ground between that and between the, what they thought of as excesses of the Reformed teaching on justification. They thought that was going to lead to people just saying, the law doesn't matter, you're justified by faith, do whatever you want to do, it's all good, have a great time. Just as long as you think you're justified, you're justified. That's kind of how they, they felt about it. Um, and again, in the council, support for these articles was not unanimous. We only have a few bishops that are supposedly representing a huge, huge church, and they still don't all agree on this. Several of these bishops voted against Trent's articles on justification. But what results ultimately from their work is 16 chapters um, of decrees followed by 33 canons. If you just read the decrees, you might think at some points that Trent was a Protestant council. There is some significant agreement. For example, let me, let me read you a few. Uh, chapter 8, the sixth session uh, says this. We are said to receive justification as a free gift because nothing precedes justification. Neither faith nor works would merit the grace of justification. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, as the apostle says, grace would no longer be grace. That sounds great. That's good. Um, if Trinity stopped there, there would be no problem. But then they have a few other articles that don't really jive with that. For example, session 6, chapter 9. No one can know by that assurance of faith, which excludes all falsehood, that he has obtained the grace of God. Okay, uh, maybe. They also said, well, yes, we've been justified in Christ apart from our merit, but at the time of our baptism, we're granted this pure and spotless state. And they use this phrase, they said, we must now carry it and keep it spotless until we appear before Christ. So kind of, if you want to think about what the gospel is according to the, to the Council of Trent, um, it's, it's great news. At your baptism, you are justified, you're in a state of grace, you're adopted, you're accepted, until you sin. Now, I mean, not like any little sin, but a mortal sin. If you commit a mortal sin, a big one, um, then eh, maybe not so good anymore. Chapter 15 says it this way, and this is just a really good, a good summary. 
the grace of justification once received is lost, not only by apostasy, by which faith itself is lost, but also by any other mortal sin, though faith is not lost. So, the grace of justification is lost with the mortal sin. And at this point, right, this is where you see the sacraments come into play, because they say, okay, this is why confession, absolution, penance, all that stuff comes into play to restore you back to the state of grace that you had at your baptism. Right, so it's, it's a sacramental-like scheme, basically. Like, here's the steps you need to take to get back. It's empowered by God's grace. It's enriched by Christ's sacrificial death, absolutely. Um, but your righteousness kind of ebbs and flows back and forth along with your sanctification. So you commit some mortal sins, do some penance, confess, be absolved, and now you can get back to your pure state again. That's the picture, okay? So one of the key differences, as you can see, between Catholicism and Protestantism is the means by which we are justified. Protestants said justification is by faith. Roman Catholic Church says justification is by baptism and sacrament. That makes sense? There's a chart on the back of your handout that kind of talks about uh, Aristotle's four causes. I don't think I'm going to take all the time to talk through all of those. We don't have enough time to get into all that. It's interesting stuff for sure, um, but this whole material and formal cause, uh, just kind of a lot of jargon that, that probably will not be helpful at this moment. Suffice it to say, either we are justified by participating in the sacrament of baptism, followed by penance if we sin, or we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Now, clarification I want to make here. The Roman Catholics at Trent didn't make this, just, this distinction, and I think many Protestants fail to see this today even. Um, when Calvin and other Protestants taught that they're justified by faith, not a result of works, they weren't saying that our faith is what's earning our justification. Let me say it this way. The opposite of our works is not faith. The opposite of our works is Christ's work. Does that make sense? So, the opposite of trusting in your works for your righteousness before God is not trusting your faith, it's trusting Christ's work for you on the cross. But the Council of Trent didn't really understand that. They misunderstood the Protestant reformers because in Canon 14 they say, if anyone says that a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, let him be anathema. So it sounds like they were kind of believing that Protestants believed that justification by faith alone was just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you just believe that you're justified hard enough, then you're justified. Um, and that's not really what, what they were. And sadly, I think oversimplifications, misunderstandings like that um, are kind of the, the substance of what led Trent to make these statements, this caricature of Protestantism that then they rejected and condemned. So what does that mean for us today? Trent is a line in the sand. Um, the decrees and canons, the Roman Catholic Church said Protestant Reformation is basically heretical. There isn't really any coming back. And those decrees and canons have never been revoked. Um, in fact, in the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, they reaffirmed them. And they softened it some. They said, we believe that Protestants are our brothers. Um, but we have to recognize that there is a division here. And so um, we want to be considerate of that, and we have Roman Catholic brothers and sisters who we know, friends that we know, 
We should encourage them to read the Bible for themselves. Ask them where their confidence for salvation lies. Is it in the sacraments or is it in Christ? But we should be open to hearing their answers, uh, and we should be ultimately longing to see unity restored to the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us and for um, how much you teach us. We pray that you will help us to be sensitive to your guiding and to, to long for unity. I'm in your church again. In Jesus' name, amen.